2: Hi gang, Sam here with a quick plug before this week's episode. If you head over to Audible now, you can buy the audiobook version of my book, Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health Without All the Bollocks, for just £2.99. It's a special promo by Amazon that only lasts until 28th of January, and I wanted to flag it to you. It's me reading the whole book aloud, basically. Give it a go. Anyway, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the writer Luke Turner, co-founder of the excellent music site The Quietus a contributor to The Guardian, Dazed and Confused, Vice, Enemy, Q, Mojo and tons of others. Luke's latest book is called Men at War, Loving, Lusting, Fighting, Remembering, 1939-1945. It's a blend of history, memoir, and biography that explores masculinity in a fascinating and original way. Luke grew up obsessed with the Second World War, but as he got older, he started to see that the types of masculinity we associate with our war heroes was not something he could personally identify with. We've all got an idea of a strong, silent, brave type of man that represents the ideal model of masculinity and assume that was the sort of bloke who fought in the wars. But is that accurate? And even if it is, why do we aspire to be that sort of bloke? These are all themes in Luke's book and ones that I was very keen to explore with him. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Luke, welcome to The Reset. Thank you very much for having me on, sir. Real pleasure. Always a pleasure to have a fellow Hammer on The Reset. And I'm sure we'll find uh, some way of bringing the subject round to that at some point today. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, I guess the thing that I'm really interested in that you've written so brilliantly about is that of masculinity. Um, and in your book, Men at War, you sort of explore the way in which kind of stereotypes of masculinity have been sort of shaped around the the, you know, our perception of Second World War and all that sort of thing. And I want to get into that. But first, tell me a bit about your own fascination with the Second World War because it was it's pretty deep isn't it and it and it was and you had it since a pretty young age how did it come about
1: well yeah i think i was i, mean, I was born in 1978 and the, the 60s and 70s was like the golden age of kids being into the war but by the time i was a, in a kid in the 80s my mates weren't really no one was, at school was really into the war the people were into football star wars which had kind of taken over the military thing uh, <laughs> wrestling was creeping in yeah. trainers and that sort of stuff and I, I, I was I, guess, I don't know why I was so into it. it's probably a lot of things in in life I think I've been react, reaction against my parents who are quite religious and you know they weren't into war at all I wasn't allowed guns I wasn't allowed um Star Wars talk we couldn't afford them to be honest but mm. a lot of, I wasn't allowed militaristic things so I think I got interested in it that way and I just thought planes were really cool that was the main thing I just yeah. loved aeroplanes I thought they were brilliant I uh, I finally got a model kit built that I used to build little Lego aeroplanes out of the space stuff with cat with using the aerials as cannons and I love watching the war films on a Sunday afternoon like Guns of Navarone all of that yeah. um, and I, I don't know what it, it's it's re- I still don't can't quite understand it but I do think you know there's a lot of research by psychologists kids are kind of drawn to violence and explosions and excitement like that it's an adrenaline thing. Um, and I guess it was around in our culture a lot, even though it had faded a bit by that point.
2: Um, I remember you... when, when I was at school, around uh, about, I'm like three years older than you, but it was a similar era. We'd play football with a tennis ball in the playground and probably about 80% of the boys were doing that. But then there was a smaller group who we were friends with who would play war and yeah, yeah. The, and, <laughs> and it was a mu- it was much smaller than the football group but they would play war often across our football match they'd be like <laughs> lobbing pretend grenades and then ducking down with their hands over their ears as they waited for the grenade to go off sort of that's so that's so amazing it was see, certainly present in the place. yes see I, I suppose
1: but by the time I by the time I got there at least in my school I was like that Japanese bloke who did surrender and they found him in like <laughs> 1958 <laughs> still on the island fighting the war I did have I did eventually have one mate who I went around his house and he had a Computer get a, a PC so we could play like flying games on it, and mm. I had another mate who was quite into soldiers, and he could like beatbox distant battle sounds, like <laughs> oh, ex- machine gun fire and explosions. So there was a couple <laughs> of us, but yeah, it was it was it was kind of. I think that was a thing. Everyone, I was really bad at football. I liked it. I, mm. I got West Ham with my dad. Everything, but I was, I've always been shit at it. Mm. So I used to be the one kind of like wishing people would play war, you know, stick yeah. guns, all that. Did I did actually at primary school did have a plot to i thought if we attached a load of string to batteries and lit it it would blow the school up and i did get some people involved <laughs> in that for a bit um, not sure i should be admitting that actually but...
2: <laughs> well it didn't work presumably so <laughs> no wondering. no it, yeah.
1: it failed so it was all right
2: um that's amazing so did you what was it were you Did at that age did you find like it just excitement was it just boys plain old boys own adventure stuff basically
1: yeah yeah that's why I, I think that was it you know I thought the airplanes were really cool um the films like there was a sort of aspirational thing with the way these fellas dressed and they were they were so sort of, suave uh, and I guess the tragedy, tragedy of it, I did, you know, you feel moved by it. But there is like writing the start off writing the book about like, I, I did always feel weird about putting the men in the cockpits of the aeroplanes. Yeah. I was a bit like, there's something a bit rum about this, having this little plastic man. And they're all the same, you know, the, yeah. the same German pilot flew every German plane, the same RAF yeah. fella flew all our planes. Uh, I just was a bit like, there's something a bit weird about that, a bit rum about it. And I, I guess that was the thing. It was all about. It's weird, because it, for me, it's like it was it, quite a masculine fascination with war. But at the same time, I was ignoring the men who were yeah. fighting. You know, I didn't want to think about that. Um, it, it, it was that I tried to push that to the back. But when I started, re- I got quite into reading war novels. And of course, that then starts bringing it a bit more into mm. into your mind, like what actually went on in the killing and how absurd
2: a lot of it is. Mm. Um, do you think it? You know the movies in particular, and um, I guess the comics and stuff like that, were what shaped your idea of what being a, a sort of a real man was then. Did, and and did that last for quite a while? Yeah, to to an extent. I mean, I think there's
1: an interesting thing where the British war films—they're none of the people in it particularly macho, are they? Then then <laughs> it's not. Jo-
2: they're all like John Le Yeah, exactly. Who is, my, who, of, my, yeah, who is a my who is my total hero? Yeah, what suave gentleman. Exactly. Um, and yeah.
1: and you know John Missouri 8 was both an icon for me and a bit of a formative crush. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know because he yeah. could he, knocking off with Private Pikes oh, bum, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 brilliant. Um <laughs> But it, I guess, I suppose, in the comics, because I wasn't allowed comics, they were sort of strictly banned. Right. House, so I wasn't allowed right. comics. But like Union Jack Jackson, I, mean, cause I used to go to other people's houses or my cousins and read them. Yeah. So he was quite macho. And the way the Germans always just sort of went aye and fell over and, and yeah. they, they were always kind of like evil, but mm. you could kill them quite easily. But I definitely, the, the suave thing, I really, I really latched on to that and... um. It's one it's not really well well known for but force 10 from Navarone which has got uh, Harrison Ford in it oh. um his first film after doing stoles I think wow and that's got one of the Fox brothers I can't remember which one uh, playing this explosives expert called Miller and he always oh. had really cool like parachutist uniforms and he'd like yeah. smoke a pipe and have a scarf and like just chuck these little sticks into things and they'd blow up And I was like, that's what I want to be. This this, this, this is what I want to be. So, yeah, that was there was a sort of ideal of these, more this sort of like suave masculinity, a bit twinkly, you know,
2: Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. You write in the book about how, you know, the sort of the the silence of the war generation, you know, and we've all heard of, you know, relatives and grandparents who just never spoke barely at all after they got back, is what allowed the sort of entertainment industry to create almost a false idea of these men who in our culture and still to this day, you know, you see it in, as you write back in the book, the rhetoric of the the right um, and any sort of nationalist movement, we kind of revere this sort of idea of the heroic second world war, Tommy. Um, But you kind of say, well, that was any of that real, or was it just invented by an entertainment industry? Right. And no one was going to deny it because all the people who, all the real heroes were just kind of either dead or silent. Is that, yeah, that
1: right? I think so. I I mean, I think some people, some veterans kind of were into talking about it, you know, and Mm. it's one thing that's quite interesting is how their testimony changes over the years and it almost becomes they they get wheeled out at things and they watch war films and some some of the testimony would change because they'd watched a war film, particularly the longest day. People at D Day started. Mentioning stuff that was in the Longest Day that didn't happen at D-Day, so right. so that the, the the that kind of media entertainment industry even influenced the lives of the men and the minds of the men who were actually there. I mean, let alone the rest of us. Mm. So I, I, I do I do feel like there was um yeah this this sort of silence. A lot of people's families didn't talk about it. Didn't talk about it in depth. I mean, my my granddad who was in the war, he died long before I was born. Mm. My other granddad was a conscientious objector, which I write about in the book, which I was always a bit uncomfortable with. So it was, you know, yeah. To be fair, I probably thought he wasn't a real man in some ways. You know, mm. I thought mm. he should have been fighting Hitler. So yeah, and I, that's that's, and I think because because there was that bit of a silence, and then you get the idealized um, portrayals of these men. That's now meant, like as you say, the kind of certain bits of the political spectrum to glom onto these people. And sort of exploit them and say, mm. you know, these are the true British heroes, young people. It's all that. It's always used in the tabloids, like young people are. You're not as good as the Second World War generation. You'd yeah. never be able to do it. And it's it. And it's kind of like picking apart the masculinity, I think, of the current generation, saying they're all snowflakes or whatever. But mm. weirdly, you know, that's what I write in the book about how in the in the war, all these generals british generals were writing to each other going. problem with with the young men of today is they're not pillars. they've been going to the cinema listening to the wireless yeah you know, yeah yeah
2: yeah
1: but going on dates you know this is making a week <laughs> and we can't get them to kill like the germans do you know and so right. this is just like an age-old thing that's been going on through history is not that young people are weak and soft and
2: are, yeah and crap um, and there was never a general so you know the, i guess we, we're sort of told it we're made to believe that there was a generation who was basically always ready for war. Like, do you know? Yeah. What I mean? Like, it's okay, we're we're just waiting, you know, as soon as the green light goes, we're all sitting around here at home ready to go and start killing. We're really up for that. Well, I don't suppose that's really true of any general. No one actually wants to go off to war and die. No,
1: I mean, I think people will do it. Look at what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, the kind of the, yeah. the mass over movi- the mobilization there of people who never have thought they'd go to war, but yeah, and I think you can see that in a lot of the testimony from the time of people kind of being called up and going because they knew they needed to, but not being thrilled about it, you know, and not all being these sort of like virtuous, patriotic, uh, clean limbed type people. There's an amazing book I quote from a lot in the called uh, The Stuff to Give the Troops by a writer called Julian McLaren Ross, mm-hmm. who ended up as a sort of proper Soho pisshead writer, like, yeah, ruined his potential. And I think his his novel, The Stuff to Give the Toops, is is based a lot on his re- reality of his experience as a soldier. And everyone, no one can be asked. They're always trying to get out of duties. They've all like, got loads of spots and they they sort of fart all the time. And it's, it's just horrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, 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 there's no kind of like clean-limbed young men going off to war. Obviously, you know, there was a percentage of people who were like that, but I don't think it was the majority. I think the majority sort of got on with it because they had to, and they were more keen about surviving
2: really and getting back home again so you know you mentioned there that you were never like much of a footballer and and you mentioned the book as well you know you felt that in your sense of your own masculinity you felt shortcomings when you when you were younger like in in terms of physical stuff tell me more about that and how that sort of inspired you to explore all of this um yeah I guess it was like
1: teenagers I went to a like a kind of weird state school that was like used to be a grammar school, but then it was just a normal um, secondary, you know, normal secondary school, but it was all boys. Mm-hmm. And it was quite, it was quite like traditional. in it, it was, I was obsessed with rugby and like, right. whether you were good at rugby or not kind of did a lot of this sort of sorting out of who was popular. And mm-hmm. I was, I, I hated rugby. I was rubbish at it. I had no interest. Um, and then, so I feel, I feel, I really didn't feel like I was fitting in with the masculinity at the time of my peers. There was a lot of bullying. It was very homophobic. And, you know, at that point in my teenage years, I was kind of really confused about sexuality. I just didn't know Mm -hmm. what, where I was ending up. And remember that time it it was, 90s was pretty homophobic. Still had Mm -hmm. section 28 in the legislative books, forbidding the kind of teaching about sexuality in schools. Tories were really homophobic. Culture generally was, um, football was, and that started putting me off. And then I started feeling like this war culture so these men weren't ever gay, you know, they never fancied other men. They were all mm. straight. You know, the only gay bloke I knew of who'd been in the war was Kenneth Williams. And he seemed to be this sort of camp. I mean, I love him. I still, said mm. one of my heroes, but um, he just didn't seem like a man's man. And I was like, am I? do I fit in with any of this? And then it was it was the kind of coming together of football and war that really put me off completely, off both in a way. It was like the 96 England versus Germany game. Uh, game in the Euros and there was that Piers Morgan's front page of the mirror going like with the picture of Stuart Pierce mm-hmm. in the tin helmet and it was like just all this war rhetoric and and I, I guess I was a bit I, I too think, I
2: think the headline was for you Fritz, Fritz the, the Euros the are over, over. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and it
1: goes on and on inside with this sort yeah. of like Pompous, trying to sound like Churchill or whatever. It's just rubbish. And then, you know, after we lost, inevitably, mm. uh, all, all the load of geezers go and smashed up Trafalgar Square, singing about two world wars and one world cup. And I was yeah. just like, that was kind of it for me. And maybe I, you know, I sometimes think, was I just a bit too, you know, I think I was so afraid of masculinity, I probably like, pushed it all away too much. And I was like, I can't be doing this anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, got into music instead. That kind of music took over at that point. And that was where I was finding like m- more, uh, fruitier people, mm. I suppose, <laughs> in mm. in the musical world. But yeah, and that, and, that, and that's that's why I wrote the book in a way. It was like in recent years, kind of coming, getting back into a lot of the stuff I was into when I was a kid uh, and like air, building aeroplanes. I started doing that again, getting back into, finding my way back into being openly into football. I always say I was like quite... I was always quite open about being like fluid in sexuality, but I was a closet football fan just because in my world of <laughs> music or whatever, to be into football was like really frowned at, you know. Right. <laughs> seen as being a bit rum. So I was always yeah. like closet closet West Ham fan. Now I'm out and everything really. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it the past five or six years, just kind of getting really sort of getting to grips with what masculinity is and feeling more comfortable in t- t- traditionally masculine scenarios and so on. I, I, I wanted to go back into looking, looking into the war. and also having a kid, having a son, I wanted to sort of think about how I relate to masculinity in the context of him mm-hmm. and also culturally just starting to feel really fed up with this constant like finger. Bagging rants about toxic masculinity and so on. Just feeling like there's more complicated and nuanced ways of looking at it than to just chuck us all in a bin.
2: <laughs> Is it more comfortable? Is it easier to sort of pick and choose your masculine identity nowadays?
1: Yeah, I mean I, I kind of hope so. I guess for me growing up with this feeling it was was I more into men or women, and that bisexuality didn't really exist. Well, it existed obviously, but it didn't. It wasn't really talked about, you know, mm. in a big way culturally. I felt it was, um, and I think now there is more fluidity. Like I can be out, you know. I've got I'm, I'm married to a woman. I've got a son, but it doesn't mean that mm. I'm not still, you know, into men or whatever. I think mm. I think that it is possible to be out in a more fluid way. I think sometimes the people are a bit positive, more positive about it than. Um, is actually the case i think for a lot of people it's still really hard a lot of people are still struggle with that particularly bisexual men i do think that's a really hard identity to be in i think bisexual women it's almost like being fetishized for ages like mm. men men find it arousing i think uh, there's a, often a flip side where women find bisexual men threatening because there's a lot of you know insec- insecurity around fidelity and so on so i think i think yeah. it's complicated but we are I, I think we're moving to a place where people can be a bit more a bit more open about who they are, a bit more fluid. People can talk about it more and that and that's positive. I mean it depends where you are. I mean, I'm in I'm in London. I do think London is a place where you go to to, to I mean I did, I moved here because I wanted to spend my twenties misbehaving, getting up mm-hmm. to miss sexy mischief, I suppose, and all that sort of stuff. I'm yeah. not sure it's the same everywhere. London does allow you to do that, and that's a privilege of being here. But um, you know, and I talk to mates who've got teenage kids and they say it's a lot more. Like again in London, but for their teenage kids, uh, they they're, they don't give a shit what whether people in their school are gay. Uh,
2: yeah, it's really anymore. interesting. I mean, I I went to school in London, and you know, and it, yeah, it was. I never thought of it as homophobic at all at the time, but I look back now and I think, oh yeah, it's like absolutely a homophobic place. There was a, you know, a couple of guys who, if not out, you know, if not out were certainly, you know, very camp and people sort of deemed them to be gay and they must have had hell throughout yeah. school. But it was very straightforward. And now my kids, funny enough, they go to the same school I went to. Oh, wow. And and it's very casual, like the way that they sometimes will drop in that there's, you know, someone who's bisexual or someone who's gay or whatever it is, you know, in, in their school. And it just seems like not un- unremarkable. But I yeah. think I think a it might be different around different parts of the, parts of the country. I mean, you know, with all this stuff, even with what what I've tried to do with the reset is to sort of show people that I, you know, again, even with discussions of mental health or or, or anything, you know, to do with feelings or emotions, that again used to be considered very unmasculine, and you had to make a choice of either being a bit of a geezer or being the sort of person who was a bit weird and wanted to talk about mental health. <laughs> I feel like those things are breaking down a little bit now and that you can still be one of the lads, but switch relatively easily if you need to into talking about stuff that's that little bit deeper.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. Because I, I used to sort of be wary of being one of the lads and I've kind of realised that probably actually that I, I, what the way I am with my friends, that's sort of what my I actually am. I was sort of fighting it for ages. It's weird. I've embraced it more than that sense of... uh. Like, I don't know that camaraderie, but also like, and, and like quite a, a twisted humor and piss taking and all of that. Like, yeah. I don't know. I did it, but I was, I was felt guilty about it. Now I don't. And, sure. and I do think, but you know, I do think people talk more about mental health. I do notice, you know, in my own case, I, you know, I, I, I do suffer from depression and I fucking chronic self-esteem problems and all this sort of stuff. And I, yeah, I, I still feel like I have that, stereotypical male response sometimes of shutting down, you know. Yeah, it's all yeah. right. We can sort of say to people, oh, you need to reach out Do your friends are going to be mm. there for you, whatever. But it's hard to t- train yourself to do that. It's easier to shut down mm. a lot of the time, I think. Mm. But mm. I, I do. I do see a positive trend and I do. I do. I think you see it out and about, don't you? I notice the way blokes are t- together has changed just even when you observe. them, I was even have some kids from the secondary school around the corner. I was walking up the road pushing my son in the pram. And they were all like walking along the pavement, like four lads arm in arm, having a lovely chat yeah, their, after really school. Nice. And I, they all had to they all had to get out the way for me pushing my pram, and they were like, "Oh, sorry, about mate." And yeah. I was like, "Wow, you wouldn't have seen that when I was a kid."
2: <laughs> no, absolutely you know, not. You, you know, yeah. it was
1: just it was really. I was like, "Wow, this is amazing." You And well, they weren't. You know, they were they were kind of like just average looking fellas, Yeah.
2: Is it is is the fact that men are, are you know are becoming nicer, younger men in particular? mean younger than us, I think you're right. You know, they just seem like generally kind of get more polite people. Is that why they're being labeled by your Piers Morgan's of this world as snowflakes? Is yeah, it just mean they're nicer?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they're nicer and they're not they're not just shitting on other people constantly to get to the top, which is what, what yeah. you did, is not it? Um I mean I do think they could you know it comes with a caveat that you people like Andrew Tate uh spouting his his stuff which i do see as toxic masculinity the way he, mm. he talks about women and the way he's basically made this sort of bro pyramid scheme where you join yeah. his weird little society and then there's that the, the guru dude at the top who's really in charge but he puts andrew tate in front yeah oh you yeah, know, yeah you know and, I, I, and he you know i talked to teach people i know are teachers and mm. um uh and, and mates who've got teenage kids and, and my missus worked on a film about Andrew Tate. And it is, it is terrifying that there's a certain subset of young men who really latch on to what he's spouting. But I think that's because they're in a vulnerable position because they are probably insecure, like we all are when we're teenagers. And they're getting that feeling where they're constantly told you are a man, you're a toxic male, buddy, buddy, bah. And if you mm-hmm. tell somebody they are something like that, they're gonna start believing it. And Andrew Tate saying, I'm gonna save you from all that. Um, i'm gonna i can I can make you feel proud of being a man and and yeah, and that involves being shitty to women so what but, i mean I find him a it's weird whether it's an age thing or when I first saw a video of him, I was just like pissing myself laughing. he's on yeah. an air a private jet that's clearly not taken off in the air and he's yeah, got like yeah. a cigar and 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 a <laughs> and a whiskey and it was just it was kind of like high ultra macho and incredibly camp.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 and I
1: read an amazing article by a brilliant writer, Dame Garlin. She was talking about him, and she was like, there, "There was some quote where he's going about how much he hates eating, and eating just makes him revolted." With yeah, himself. I saw that. And she's yeah, yeah. and she's like, "This is exactly what you'd get on a like, an anorexic forum for teenage girls." You yeah, know, which yeah, which was such a brilliant point. You know, yeah. So I kind of wonder where he actually sits in masculinity, and you know, it's kind of like you know, I do think he's a cultural.
2: He's also very preening. I mean, he's oh a, yeah yeah yeah. He's a preening yeah. person. Which I'm I not think, saying there's yeah. anything I- inherently wrong with being dreaming, <laughs> right? Fair <laughs> enough. But it's like, it's not real. it doesn't fit in with traditional masculine stereotypes, does it? No, I mean,
1: not probably not back to what, I don't know, like the, 18th century, where they were all, like, preening their wigs he, or he, something. He very, he very
2: often, I mean, maybe I've imagined this, but in his images, in his pictures, he's often got, like, a, a sort of quite figure-hugging tuxedo jacket on, but with nothing underneath. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, and he, it's very waxed. I, mean, I don't
2: <laughs> think you could wear that to West Ham very easily, for example. No, no you know? I
1: don't think you could, could <laughs> you? No, I really don't think you could. But I I do think he's... I made my made a good point, I felt, which was, like, there's always, like, a cultural phenomenon that's feared because of its influence on young men in the 90s it was hip-hop and and rap music like this is violent misogynistic culture that's leading young men astray and influencing to do bad things and i do think he is the modern incarnation of that kind of um, sort of regular occurrence in cultural paranoia, but he does have that direct way to contact people or to yeah. to get in people's faces because he's on he's an online
2: creation. It's interesting you say that about hip hop because uh, of course, of course, people were like very worried about that. And I suppose looking back, you know, when those when when you know certain acts were coming out, their lyrics at the time would have been very shocking. But how many people do you know of our generation? who became obsessed with that music when they were kids and still love it now, but a kind of very metropolitan liberal. <laughs> yeah, party yeah, all of them. Yeah, 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 all yeah. of them. All so of them. Had, yeah. Those lyrics had no <laughs> lasting impact on their worldview no. or their values whatsoever. No. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I mean, I used to kind of have the, again, like I was saying, I used to react against all this masculinity in a way that I think was a bit uptight. And then it was when I saw like somebody pointing out like, when Nick Cave and the Bad Seas did their "Murder Ballads" album, there's more people killed on that record than any hip hop record. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was at, Nick Cave was actually going to gangster rap gigs yeah. at the time to right. get influence, and it's got all these insane songs like uh, "Stagger Lee" and he like I crawl over fifty girls, good pussies, just to get to one fat boy's asshole. Like, right. you know, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. totally wrong, but it's Nick Cave doing it, so it's fine. And yeah, that really changed my perspective of it, you know. Um, yeah. and and I, I think actually one of the things that really changed my um, perception of like where i felt around masculinity was when grime appeared because mm. suddenly i heard this like masculinity which a, a lot of that early grime was very male and very kind of cocky but it was mm. so funny and so fast and it had an insecurity in it as well and and i sort of realized at that point that, you know piss taking has you opening yourself up aren't you there's a, yeah. there's something about a, a piss taking uh interaction whether it's a kind of grime thing or just with your mates where by firing out you're 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 leaving yourself vulnerable to the comeback and then yeah it's yeah. so all these things that probably like, not rocket science to most blokes but i for me i kind of realized and and felt very different uh, about it afterwards yeah i yeah. think it's more complicated
2: yeah you obviously you're not a fan of the kind of andrew tate form of toxic masculinity but do you think that like accusations of us all somehow, you know, we can all walk around, walk down the street? So certainly those of us who are of a liberal bent can sort of almost find ourselves post me too and whatever, just feeling guilty, waking up in the morning and having a, <laughs> well, waking up in the morning and having a piss.
1: Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I I I agree. That first one of the day, but that's a <laughs> lot of volume, isn't oh, it's, it? It's um uh, I find but again that's one of those male things where it's very satisfying you know I like that, that, yeah. that it's almost uh, you know some of those weird things that are quite blokey and quite basic I love you know I have a primal I have, I, primal things yeah. you know I have, I have a couple of mates but we're always talking about shits and that mm. you know it's, mm. it's great but yeah, yeah I not. I I think I do think it's weird because I do think we are wired biologically to, to have certain responses to I don't know uh, attractive women uh, sort of Nudity, all these sorts of things, and you do, yeah. you know, you do have to be you do have to kind of, I do, yeah, you do find yourself kind of going, Oh, should I have thought that at this point? You know, yeah, there is a yeah. sort of element of judgment, and it takes a bit of processing. And I, and I, I think it's a there's a big difference between Andrew Tate and everyone else. You can't, we're not all, we're not all in that, um, uh, that same basket,
2: right? Last area of, of all this stuff that I want to ask you about is, uh, do, do you have any thoughts on the and it's very it's sort of parallel to Andrew Tate, maybe a much more diluted and parochial thing, but, you know, the high performance form of masculinity that we read so much about now, the whole kind of like, uh, you know, the get up at 5am, have an ice bath and optimise your protocols kind of uh, masculinity, which has really taken off. It's kind of like, I call it LinkedIn personality, uh, uh, masculinity, do you know what I mean? Where everything's about, we're all engaged in a competition and we all need to be our absolute very best selves every day in order to conquer the competition and be the best. And this is really taken off in a huge way podcasts, you know, Diary of CEO, high performance, and there's so many other books and stuff. I mean, what's your take on, on that?
1: I mean, it all seems a bit much to, to me. I'm not a high <laughs> performance individual. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I don't know. It's weird. I mean, I, I've not encountered anyone ever like, that I suppose. So it's it's mm. kind of hard. I know it's I know it's it's sort of existing in the culture, but I just never I never encountered uh, those kind of people in the day to day. But I, I mean it is weird because it is very survival of the fittest, isn't it? It's getting back to mm. to a kind of very basic, primal, primitive sort of masculinity I mean, i'm not getting up at five in the morning for an eye bath so i really resent my son when he decides he wants to go and play with thomas at five in the morning
2: I'm,
1: and let alone and i like thomas tank edge i went into it but i'm not getting in an ice bath don't <laughs> worry <wait.
2: laughs> and just taking it all back to the the stuff in your book i mean you know whether it's andrew tate or whether it's you know woman you know old womanizing men or whether it's high performance guys do you feel that it's all this sort of you know, people still kind of struggling to live up to this idea of that sort of war generation that we all grew up sort of having presented to us as like an, an ideal and the sort of thing we should all be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, again, that's one of those things that's always been there in culture, isn't it? Like they're kind of back to like ancient Greece and the heroic ideal or, mm. or whatever, I Bet the Romans with the gladiators, but it was a bit like that, you know, mm. um, I don't know. It's just the war generation. I do, I do, I do think they're very useful to hold up as this sort of ideal because, for, because of these simplistic cultural narratives, it's easy to go look at these young men who sacrificed everything and went away and came back, um, and that ignores the stuff I write about in the book. Just, but like, just what they actually got up to, particularly sexually. You know, mm-hmm. it was a, there was a sexual revolution in the Second World War. I I argue is bigger than the 60s because it was everybody, not just a sort of (laughs) bit of an elite cultural elite doing it. Um, And that's why I I want to sort of break that down a little bit to sort of say, you know, we've just got a whole look at ourselves. We can't, we can't, we shouldn't be compared to the past all the time. We just got to look at what we're doing in the in the here and now, really. Mm
2: -hmm. Fascinating stuff. Uh, The book's great. It's called uh, Men at War. And uh, what's it out? Is it out in paperback yet, or is it? It's it's out in hardback now, which means Mm. you can get it quite cheap in hardback. And then it's coming out in paperback in April if you don't want to lug around a big old book. Brilliant. Um, Keep an eye out for it. Look, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I hope to see you at West Ham one of these days. Now that you've re-embraced it,
1: hope hopefully see see you there at some some point. That'd be amazing.
2: Luke thanks ever so much for joining me. Cheers, Sam. Thanks. That was Luke Turner. Check out his book. I put a link in the show notes. He's a great guy and a fantastic writer. Thanks for listening as always, gang. Please remember to subscribe to The Reset at samdelaney.substack.com and buy my book, Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health About The Bollocks, available now at Audible for a special offer of £2.99. Uh, you can also buy it normal as a paperback soon or whatever. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.